Hello and welcome to the Ed Surge On Air podcast, a weekly look at the future of education. I'm Jeff Young, an editor here at Ed Surge. And I'm Rebecca Koenig, a senior reporter here. Welcome, Becky. This is exciting. You're you're new to Ed Surge, and we're excited to have you and be involved both with reporting. People should check out your stories for sure, and also doing some interviews for the podcast. Uh, people will start to hear your voice. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I'm curious. You talked with a sociologist um, for the for your first debut here, who's studying the power dynamics around science and tech, right? Yes. I sat down with Ruha Benjamin, who is an associate professor of African-American studies at Princeton, and she's been focusing these days on the unusual reverence people seem to have uh, around tech and big data. Here's how she put it. It purports to be above society and not embroiled in the muddy business of our everyday lives and then sort of arbitrates the truth because it sits above. But of course, people create these tools and systems. That's it's, it's so funny that people forget that there's people, but because it's people designing these algorithms, it's possible that human biases can and do slip in when they're built. Exactly, exactly. And she calls that discriminatory design and argues that it influences healthcare, law enforcement, and beyond. It's that sort of tension between what we imagine science and technology to be and what it actually is in our everyday lives. That's my entry point. I was curious to hear more about her ideas and how they fit into education. Well, welcome again. And here are the highlights from that conversation. Thank you for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. I'm curious how you would describe discriminatory design and define the term, the new gym code, which Absolutely. you've used. Absolutely. And so, you know, I first started thinking about the, the, the phrase discriminatory design, again, starting in the life sciences and, and biotechnology. And, you know, the example that I used to illustrate what that actually looks like practically something that we can actually use with our students, right? So uh, 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 an analogy um, it goes back to a park bench that I um, was sitting on in, in Berkeley, California, which is where I went to graduate school. And, um, you know, I was back in Berkeley um, in February and I was living at the time in Boston. So I was in the middle of a winter and wanting to just like lay on this bench for a few minutes between meetings. And I couldn't lay down on the bench because there were armrests built into the bench, which is pretty common. Um, But at that moment, I was um, frustrated by it because I wanted to lay down and I realized, oh, you know, there's probably a reason for this. Um, I'm sitting here in the Bay Area, which has... Um, a, 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 a homeless crisis in direct proportion to the growth of the tech industry. And it's likely that businesses are putting this bench out, you know, to deter so-called vagrants from um, laying down. And um, I thought, oh, you're being a little paranoid, Ruha. But then I went and did some searching online and found that this is a global phenomenon. The, the idea of designing public space in order to um, draw in certain publics and exclude certain publics. 
An armrest is just one mechanism, one design decision that reflects that value and that politics in which we want to get the problem out of sight, out of mind. You know, we're not really dealing with homelessness, but we don't want to see those who are affected by it. And so I found single occupancy benches in Helsinki, like only one booty can fit on that bench at a time. (laughs) I found um, these, these benches in a town in France. The mayor put them out on like Christmas Eve. And they literally have a cage built around the bench and you pay to get into the And the people in the town were so appalled that within 24 hours they had the bench removed, which tells me that organizing collectively, you can actually change, you know, the, the design of whatever, whatever discriminatory design we're talking about. You don't just have to accept it, you know? And then the example that best illustrates this notion of discriminatory design for me is um, a bench that has spikes built into it and it's metered. So you put in a coin and then the spikes retreat for about 15 minutes and then they give you a little beep, 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 beep and the spikes come back up and you have to keep feeding the meter of the bench. And And the default is that it has spikes. It has spikes. It's designed into the bench. So what's interesting is that this bench um, was designed by a German artist initially to get people to think around this, this question of, how we privatize public space. And we can apply that to so many arenas. We can think about the privatization of education. You know, you pay to access it and to let the spikes retreat. And if you can't pay, then you're harmed or excluded. You can apply it to healthcare, right? Privatizing healthcare. And so whatever arena it is, it's thinking about how the way that that institution, whether that classroom, that curriculum is designed, how it can potentially have these spikes built into the process that either exclude certain students in this case, harm them, and that the priorities of the designer is what, it's what get, it's what's getting materialized. And so, although that started as art, <laughs> there are some municipalities in different places in the world that were like, that's a great idea. Oh, no. Let's put that into our park. They were inspired. They were inspired, which also tells us, you know, art is powerful, you know, and it doesn't necessarily do what we want it to do, but it's not a whole separate domain. And it's not just like the icing on the cake, because part of what we have to wrestle with is how... Um, the, the imagination of some people is, is getting materialized in the world around us. And some people's fantasies about how to design the world, how to design schools or how to design a town, their fantasies produce nightmares for other people. So the nightmares, the, the, the terrible conditions in which many people in the world live is the underside of someone else's fantasy. It's not a whole separate domain, but it's in direct relation and so in this case with the bench, you know, um, some governors, some, you know, provincially, you know, people in China and others were like, oh, that's a way to deter homelessness. And so I think for me, the way that that the bench metaphor applies in the educational arena is for us to think well beyond questions of access to certain kinds of spaces or resources or technologies, because you might have access to something that's harming you. And so just including those who've been historically excluded is 
is not enough in terms of cultivating equity in the context of education because you might you might be in a classroom or be studying a book that has these spikes and so inclusion is harmful in those conditions and so we have to think about what are the design what are the design values here what are the politics and the assumptions about who a student is and what learning is all these like you know, ground zero kind mm-hmm. of questions, and then look at the way that those things get materialized. And so that's about discriminatory. That's a very, very, very long <laughs> answer to Thank just, you. I'll give you a much shorter answer <laughs> for the new Jim Code, which is really a, a specific manifestation of discriminatory design in which racist values and assumptions are built into our technical systems. And so discriminatory design can do all kinds of things. In that case, it had to do with homelessness and class. But with all of these different forms of inequality, we have to think critically. And so New Jim Code describes the the way that our historical practices um, that have been deeply racialized and racist um, get embedded into our technical systems and how on the surface, it looks like innovation. It looks like a shiny new thing that makes life easier. It's more efficient. It's, you know, it's more, even more less biased. We think of it as more neutral. But when you go right beneath the surface, you see the spikes. <laughs> you see the way in which um, it's producing nightmares for some in the name of efficiency and progress. You've pointed out that data uh, and technology isn't merely found, it is produced. Can you talk a little bit about why that distinction matters and why the producers matter? Absolutely. You know, we have to think about why did we ask this question and not this one? Why did we pose it in this way and not this way? That is part of the production process, right? Even before you start thinking about where to look for the data. So in the context of the new Jim Code and discriminatory design, one of the main... um, a, a sort of channels that's producing this inequity is the data that's used to train automated systems, right? The training data. And so if you're pulling, let's say you're trying to decide what teachers to hire in your school, all right? And you're basing it on um, those teachers who've um, excelled previously. That's your training data. But let's say for the last 50 years, you've only hired teachers that come from three elite schools, let's say. And that 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 history is built into who is excelling now. And that means you're likely to get more of the same. Your automated system is going to learn what you have previously thought was a good teacher and give you more of that, which means if you, in theory, are trying to broaden that pool, you're not likely to do it unless you go back and look at that training data. And then in that way, we are both reproducing this history and erasing it at the same time because we think of of these automated systems as somehow removed from the past and removed from our ongoing social practices. And it sounds pretty easy with that example to not be intending to replicate um, whatever hiring processes you've used for the past 50 years, but if you're not thoughtful about it. You just end up doing it, and then it gets baked into the system. Absolutely. And that's why, two points, I really encourage us to have a post-intentional analysis of equity and justice. And I get this concept of post-intentional racism from my colleague Imani Perry, because oftentimes the first reaction to any sort of um, example of potential inequity is for people to say, well, was it intended or not? As if that is the measurement for how seriously we should take it. 
And we don't do that with other forms of harm, but we do that with social harm. So like if I'm parked outside of this building and someone is like breaking into my car, I don't run up to them and ask, you know, do you feel that you're a thief in your heart? Do you, do you identify as a thief? Do you mean to be a thief? No, I mean to just have a new car. (laughs) No, right. But with that's an actual harm that we wouldn't sort of go and dissect what's in the person's heart. We would look at the outcomes of their action and the impact on me to measure how to deal with and decide how to deal with it. But with social harms, we want to do all of this psychological dissection in order to decide, okay, if, if we have decided it's not intentional, and it's very hard to, to prove something is intentional, and that's part of the power of that way of diverting our attention, then we have to think about really what the outcomes are, right? We've talked about who does not benefit from discriminatory design and technology. So who does benefit? Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, it's interesting to think about this relationship between who's um, served by our current systems and who's not. And because on one level, I definitely think that um, those who uh, fit into um, the category, the invisible social categories, if whether you're a man, whether you're cisgender, whether you're white, um, that you you get away with a lot. <laughs> and so um, on one level, it looks like you're benefiting because you're monopolizing resources, you um, your priorities are being materialized, et cetera. But on a, on a, in a longer time span, one of the things that I'm finding, especially in the context of public health and the way that people are impacted by inequity in terms of your actual um, health outcomes is that you can seem like you're benefiting in the short run, but in the long run, things come back to bite you. <laughs> and so there is, um, there are the, the obvious targets of these inequitable systems, whether our schools and our, our, you know, our hospitals and our, you know, our political, um, functions. But I think in the long run, there's an idea in sociology called linked fate that, you know, that all, that, If someone else is being harmed by a system, that can eventually come back to harm you. And we think about, we look state by state and country by country, those places that have less inequality in which the the gap between the haves and the have-nots is smaller, the haves in those contexts actually live longer and happier lives than the haves in places where there's more inequality. And you can do kind of a thought experiment to hypothesize why that might be the case. But, you know, one one line of um, study and reasoning is to think about what it means to monopolize resources and resources, not just um, economic and material resources, but also what we call symbolic resources, like respect and dignity are resources that we often ration. When you think about how we treat different students, right? Some students, by default, we sort of, you know, we are going to show them more respect and less disciplinary action than others. We know, for example, that black boys in our schools are hyper-disciplined. And you put eye-tracking technology on preschool teachers and show them a scenario of different kids playing, their eyes constantly go to the little black boys doing the exact same thing. And that's a symbolic resource in which discipline is disproportionately um, enacted on some kids and others. So all kinds of resources... And so you have this monopolization of these resources, but at the same time, 
if you are in the haves and that in these these um, wider contexts, you kind of have to always be looking over your shoulder too, right? Because more and more people don't have, and so it creates a a, a background stress and anxiety that we see embodied. Actually, people die earlier of a wide variety of causes because um, of this inequity. That inequality kills not just the obvious targets, but it harms everyone, and so. I, I share this because to me, it's a basis for building solidarity and building connection across these fault lines, these social fault lines of class and race and gender and so, so on. And we start to think that, oh, actually, my well-being is tied up with the well-being of other people. And it's not necessarily this zero sum where, you know, if there's more inequity, then I'm going to be a loser in this game. Right. Right. What role should people who have strong technical abilities play in ensuring data and technology uh, don't encode inequity? And what about people who have different kinds of skills, artistic skills, communication skills, social science research skills, such as yourself? I mean, it's such an important question because I do think we've entered... We've entered a, a moment where I feel like there's more and more people with technical backgrounds who get the problems I'm describing in terms of discriminatory design and the new Jim Code. From the time I started the book Race After Technology to today, it's only been about two and a half years, but the tone of the conversation has changed dramatically in terms of, like when I started, I thought I was expecting and, and preparing myself for much more pushback and kind of um, um, wariness on the part of those who are in the tech industry. But in the last year or two, there's been a growing movement of tech insiders and employees who are challenging and pushing their own companies to um, deal with the stakes, the political stakes and and social stakes of the, the things that they're producing. So I feel like there's more and more people who have that at a gen, like the genuine question, like I have this background and these skills, so how can I contribute? And the, the, I feel like the first gut sort of reaction or solution is let me create a technology that can address this social problem, right? right? And so that, that's your skill. That's your worldview that technology is great and can fix everything. What my colleague Meredith Broussard calls techno chauvinism, like technology (laughs) is the answer. Um, but I want us to pause on that reaction because that is what I call in the book techno benevolence, which is looking for tech fixes for deep seated, wide ranging social problems where you look for how to just tweak the algorithm or have a new software app for this. Right. And um, it's not that technology has no role to play, but part of the issue, again, going back to our beginning of our conversation, is that we're outsourcing decision-making to technology. And so if our starting point is that technology is going to save us right, from ourselves, that's a variant of that, even if you're cognizant of the various biases that are, are possible. And so I would really encourage those with technical skills to collaborate and team up with the wide range of people who've been addressing these social problems for a very long time, right? They're not new. They're not new problems inaugurated by technology. They're amplified deep and sped up by technology. But I think your first your first um, step needs to be looking around and, and not trying to reinvent the wheel <laughs> and looking to see what organizations, what institutions have been in this struggle and working on this for a long time. And then 
ask them what they need in terms of any kind of techno technological contribution to that um, that um, that pro that um, solution or that movement. And so it's really calling for a kind of technological humility mm -hmm. that you don't have all the answers, and that even if you could produce an app that would address some aspect of it, that might not be what's really needed at that moment. And so thinking about um, collaboration more than a buzzword, but how to engender participatory design grounded in justice. Justice not as like a platitude or an ideal, but as a method, like as a set of practices in which you are constantly looking at what you're producing and weighing it against certain values that have to do with not just the outcome, but the process, like how you get to that outcome, who's at the table, whose priorities, whose, um, you know, um, worldview are being incorporated in this. And so that brings in the other groups that you mentioned in terms of artists, in terms of humanities, um, scholars, social scientists, and really thinking about the importance of qualitative and narrative and storytelling as part of the solutions that we're working on for whatever the the, the question of equity or um, inequity is in education or elsewhere. To that end, um, how can technology be used to combat discrimination and achieve a more just society? Is there a potential um, use case mm -hmm. for improving yeah. the problems that we've either had for a long time or that technology has exacerbated. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely think it. some technologies have a role to play. Um, but there are also many technologies, I think, that we need to be able to refuse as well. Just because um, it's possible to design something doesn't mean we need that to design it. And so I feel like we need to widen the space of refusal and resistance against certain forms of technologies in which there's no way to design the spikes out of it, <laughs> you know? Right. But there are many, I think, arenas in which technology can play a role. And I think part of the process of designing those technologies has to think about what are the underlying assumptions? What is the problem that this technology is trying to solve? So many of the automated systems right now have a built-in assumption or desire, for example, to identify um, individuals who are... Um, worthy of admission or not, who are risky or not. So it's about identifying the qualities of individuals yeah, that risk, make them risk, risk assessment. Whether we're talking about policing, but also in education, identifying at-risk youth is a big arena that is relevant to educators in which, for example, in the city of um, St. Paul, Minnesota, the police and the public school system teamed up to um, collect all this data on youth in order to quote identify at-risk youth with the idea that they want to in theory help them but there's no there's not a strong precedent that that's actually what these institutions do once they identify at-risk right. youth and they what they called their initiative was the innovation project so it sounded very shiny and new but people in the community were 
very quickly um, mobilized because they understood that that was just a kind of shiny way to talk about um, a newfangled way of surveilling these youth and criminalizing them. And so within a year, over 20 organizations in the in the city mobilized and held focus groups and community meetings and pushed the government to actually dismantle this project. And the, what they called it was the 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 um, the cradle to prison algorithm um, coalition because they were bringing in this idea. They understood that, you know, it's not just the, the, the um, school to prison pipeline. It starts much earlier, the cradle, and it also is in enrolling technology and algorithms in this process. And through this mobilization, they were able to one end this, but crucially also create an alternative, more community-based approach in which they're not opposed to technology, but they are deciding what data is important to collect and how they're going to use it. And so who is asking the question is vital. And I think not just in the context of education, but in all these arenas, it's not the riskiness of individuals that we need to be focused on. We need to look at the way that institutions and powerful actors produce risk. So the risk production of various sectors of society, which changes the lens and it looks at the powerful, not the powerless. And so whether you're talking about the way that, you know, real estate industry produces risk or banks produce risk, hospitals produce risk, education. And so what data we're collecting changes because you're not looking at the lowest in the, in the hierarchy, but the most powerful. And so to the extent that we can use technology to collect that data, expose it and actually begin to tackle it, it's, it's promising, but it, it's not the technology that's the innovation. It's actually changing the politics of the initiative and who we're looking at, what data we're collecting. And there are various initiatives. And one I'll just mention is comes out of a, a kind of creative um, twist on this. Rather than look at um, crime prediction of street level crime, which is currently happening in towns and cities all across the, the, the country in which you know, the people in the most oppressed communities are being surveilled and their criminality is being predicted through automated systems. There's a group that started what they call the white collar early, the white collar crime early warning system. And they create heat maps of cities all across the country that looks at the likelihood of financial crimes occurring in certain neighborhoods. And of course, it's usually the financial where the banks are. So they've created this interactive map and you have an app that you download that alerts you when you're entering a high crime area. It created a profile of the likely criminal using the LinkedIn images of like 6,000 CEOs. And it turns out most of them are white and male. And so it's subverting this idea. And like the spiked bench, it's getting us to think about the underlying logics in this wider, this wider technical, um, you know, process of policing. And it's funny when you are interacting with it only because it's not happening and it's not targeting the, you know, that this is targeting the powerful. Right. And so when you actually think about the fact that these very same techniques are being trained on black and Latinx neighborhoods, then it becomes much more sobering. But that's an example of a creative reversal that gets us to think and question something that's actually happening in the world right now. And so, you know, this is a way that we can use technology, but also question technology at the same time. Well, thank you so much for sharing your insight with us today. It's been really wonderful. I've learned a lot. Thank you, Rebecca, for having me. I loved it. <laughs> this has been the Ed Surge On Air Podcast. If you're new to our show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
or wherever you listen, and you can find all our past episodes. This episode was recorded by me, Rebecca Koenig, and edited by Jeff Young. We'll be back next week with more conversations about how education is changing. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.